Welcome everyone. Today we'll be diving into the story of a place, specifically East Ironbound Island. It's one of many islands in the Mahombe Islands off Nova Scotia. And it's this windswept, craggy, romantic island on the North Atlantic. Okay, you've got that really raw, rocky energy. And it's primarily um, always been an island of fishermen and farmers. There's about 10 houses on the island. And this is where I'm from. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Let's back up a little bit. My name is Kat Fink. And uh, traditionally, there are two families on the island, and it's the Finks and the Youngs. My parents met off island. My mom is American. I grew up more on the mainland than on Ironbound since school is on the mainland, but weekends, summers, etc., they were all on Ironbound as much as, essentially, as much as my father could manage. Anywhere I go in the world, I've always identified myself as an Ironbounder, and I I only recently in my adult life kind of came to recognize that that was in some ways strange because if you're going off of just bare hours, I was from the mainland of Nova Scotia, certainly more than I was from Ironbound. But I, I asked my brothers as well how they described themselves and found out that they have the same thing, like, we're Ironbounders. Now, Ironbound no longer exists in the sense that it had previously. There's nobody living year-round on the island. Nobody could make a living on the island. It was a primary industry um, operated place. So, and there's no way that a inshore fisherman with a hand line out in their boat on their own, pulling one fish at a time out of the ocean can compete with the way that industry works these days. So it's it's a different thing than it ever used to be. Now, me personally, I left Nova Scotia as soon as I graduated from high school. Uh, I went and worked in the circus industry for about 17 years. And so it's only recently that I've moved back to Nova Scotia, and even more recently that I've become a mum. Now, these events have pushed my mind back to wanting to understand my father, who died when I was 23, and wanting to understand what his motivation was in trying to maintain Ironbound, which was, during this time, it was a dying community. It was slipping back into the sands of time, which happens to all things. Every great empire has its rise and has its fall, and even the great empire of uh, East Ironbound has, has seen its ascent and its decline. But my dad was not only trying to keep it alive in our minds and keeping the sense of identity at the forefront, but he was literally trying to maintain the infrastructure of a community. The fish stores, the lanches, uh, these are all things that I'll further define a little bit later on, with just sort of himself, his wife, his small army of children, and by army, I mean there were three of us. Um, in many ways, retrospectively, it would look like a fool's errand. Although one thing I can say here, 15 years after his death, is that the unwavering sense of identity that I received from knowing that I'm an ironbounder 
has been an elemental constant that underpins the foundation of my sense of self, especially at the very bottom, at the darkest and most challenging times of my life, which is a powerful thing to have on your side, especially in these times when people feel so uprooted and disconnected from a sense of self. There are not so many folks left who lived on the island. Many of my elders are not around to tell their stories themselves. But I heard this quote, and I I don't know who it's from, so I can't give credit for it, but it really struck a chord in me, is that a person has two deaths. One is when their physical body dies, and the other is the last time their name is spoken. So I would really love to breathe life back into the memory of Ironbound and the Ironbounders and record the history that I can and speak the names of the people who lived there since their legacy has been a source of strength for me. I think I can best honor my father by keeping these names alive. I think I can best share with my son this sense of strength and self by saving their stories and I think I can further honor them by sharing the stories widely and hope that it's interesting and inspiring or at least grounding for you, whoever you are listening out there in the world. So some family context. My father's name was Robert Fink. His brother was Philip, sister Fayan, and his parents were William Isaac and Mildred. One thing that's going to be interesting and challenging for me in leaning into this project is learning the details of my own family tree. Because the island community was small, there were many people who we referred to as aunt or uncle who were not technically aunts or uncles. So you'll see in the interview with my brother, which is the next episode, we both have moments of kind of confusing who was related in which way, like where their actual place was on the family tree. Aunt and uncle were catch-all phrases that might actually be applied to great aunt or second cousin or, well, you know, just much much further or more um distant relatives it was they were catch-all terms um a unique feature of the island and don't worry this seems like a tangent but it is actually connected is that there was a one-room schoolhouse and every child on the island was educated and there was always a school teacher who was working specifically towards the children's education Now, often enough, the school teachers were young women who ended up marrying men from the island and offering, amongst so many other things, genetic diversity. My grandmother was one of these school teachers. When I was growing up, there were still people living full-time on the island. Russell was fishing. It was a community, not necessarily a vibrant one, which is to say it it was in decay. It was headed towards this transition that all of Nova Scotia and a lot of other parts of the world were seeing around that time. Older folks were moving to the mainland. My nan died when I was about 12 or 13. And by that time, the energy on the island was very different. Now, we always worked on the island growing up in the way that you work to live. We were planting potatoes, weeding, and maintaining gardens, digging potatoes. You may notice we ate a lot of potatoes. (laughs) Um, But John Risley, who owns Clearwater, which is the fishing industry essentially here in Nova Scotia, 
he bought much of the land from the folks who were retiring and moving to the mainland so that they could have access to health care, um, food, kind of have a little bit more support in their declining years. And so he built a house, um, a barn, brought in cattle, and brought kind of a whole new nature of work to the island because as we were moving away from doing um, the traditional work of maintaining our lives, suddenly there was a source of income in um, in working on his projects. So because he had cattle, then suddenly the fields were being hayed again. And in doing hay, you have to uh, have the fields grow up and then you have to mow the fields and you have to have it all turned into bales and the hay has to be dried, etc., etc. But then... Um, all of these hay bales have to be transported by hand onto a tractor and stacked up nice and high. And then the tractor has to go to the barn and each one of those hay bales has to um, travel on a hay elevator up to the hayloft of the barn and be stacked up there. So it's it's heavy work. Um, and there was also all of these buildings that needed to be restored. He had purchased a lot of the sort of functional infrastructure of the island along with uh, land and so these sorts of buildings he was having us do foundation work so we were doing um, concrete pouring and carrying shingling roofing these are all the things that I was up to as a 12 year old girl <laughs> so all of this had a big effect on my personal development and traditional gender roles definitely still existed uh, 100% but with the more traditional lifestyle falling away I ended up working with the men so I see now how mixed my father must have been about this since uh, on one side he he was a feminist which is a word I, I think he would find that a dirty word for me to be using in reference to him but um, he he definitely like wanted me to be uh, strong and he wanted me to be independent and he wanted me to earn good money and um, all of these things and on the other hand he uh, he would bemoan how he wanted me to go to Emily Post finishing school <laughs> and he wanted me to be a lady um, and then, it, like I said, at the same time, he was teaching me how to do the oil change on my car and um, carrying 60 pound bags of concrete around. So I remember um, getting up for work in the mornings. And of course, everyone has the ways that they, you know, embellish their stories of their own childhoods. And so, and, and we all know at this point that we can't even trust our own memory. You know, we, we realize that things were way more overblown than <laughs> in our minds than maybe they practically were. But um, I have this objective point that I can kind of anchor my memories to about getting up in the morning. And um, the fact was that because we're in Canada, we listen to the CBC radio, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And when we were getting up in the morning to go to work on the island, the CBC wasn't playing yet. Um, 
<laughs> so it was early enough that there wasn't the CBC. We were actually listening to the news from the BBC in England. So we were getting up in the morning with the folks that were on the other side of the ocean. <laughs> um, and I remember that it was about, it would usually take to the end of breakfast before my hands would be kind of warmed up enough that I would be able to zip up my jeans. So I'd wake up in the morning and my hands would be frozen into the shape of the shovel handle that I'd been working with the day before. And so I'd be able to pull my jeans on and then I'd eat my breakfast with my jeans unzipped. And then by the end of breakfast, I could actually kind of do a little bit of finer manipulation and use the zipper. So was this kind of a strange childhood? Is this an unusual for a 13 year old girl to uh, have that shovel hand? And I think it kind of was, yes, but you know, I guess that's part of the, uh, part of what I'm exploring here. So let's touch on some practical bits, just basic description of the island so that you can envision it if you're not from this part of the world. And one of the interesting resources that I have in hand is this book, Offshore Islands of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. This was written by Alison Mitchum um, back in 1984. So this is, it's definitely outdated. It's definitely going to be um, not accurate to today, but at least it gives you an idea of the way somebody coming from outside of the island would look at it and describe it at that moment in time. So Alison Mitchum says, Big Tankook and East Ironbound Islands of iron men and wooden boats of cabbages and kings. Tankook, seven miles out from Chester in Mahone Bay, faces the open sea. Ironbound, four miles beyond Tankook, receives the full force of Atlantic winds and waves. Both islands are rock-bound, the home for more than 200 years of some of Atlantic Canada's most remarkable iron men and wooden boats. They are among the largest and are certainly the most famous of the estimated 365 islands, one for every day of the year, in Mahone Bay. Tankook is known for its remarkable Tankook schooners and outsized cabbages, ironbound as the setting of Frank Parker Day's novel Rockbound, 1928. But whereas the Tankookers never seem tired of hearing eulogies about their prowess as builders of boats and makers of sauerkraut, ironbounders clearly wish that the outside world had never heard of them through Day's book. Boats have been a priority for the people of all these islands for the past hundred years. Little wonder. Their lives depended on them. Over the years, the most famous of these were probably the Tankook whalers, schooners built on the Tankooks, which were generally reckoned to be the fastest and most seaworthy boats to be found. They have become legendary. Not only were they the most reliable of fishing schooners, but their owners, who were usually also their builders and skippers, counted on being able to win a race against any yachtsman, and that after a full day's fishing. It must be remembered, too, that the day's fishing for the men of these islands has always begun in the wee hours of the morning and continued until late afternoon, a fact attested to both by contemporary observation and by Day's book. And here she, she spends a little while speaking uh, primarily about Tankook, so I'm going to skip ahead. She says, 
There are a number of reasons for the differences in the two islands. One of these is evident as soon as one steps off the boat. Vehicles are rarely visible on Ironbound. On Tankook, they are everywhere. Aesthetically, this is important. The visitor to Ironbound who walks along the narrow track which the island's one tractor and truck have made feels a great tranquility. Here is peace. Not only has he escaped from the hectic pace set elsewhere by the automobile, but he has also come far from the eyesores of contemporary civilization produced by piles of rusting metal dumped in fields and woods. On Ironbound, only cranberries lodge in the clearings between the spruces. On Tankook, a huge pile of rusting metal not far above the wharf attests to the dominance of the automobile and its attendant problems here. Of course, there are reasons for the differences. Tankook is more than twice as big as Ironbound, with a very much greater population. Tankook is roughly three miles long and one mile wide, whereas Ironbound is about a mile long and half a mile wide at its widest part. Tankook has some 150 residents and quite a number of summer visitors. Ironbound has 12 families, which are extensions of two, the Youngs and the Finks, and few visitors. Because of the size of Tankook and its considerable population, vehicles and large numbers of them are almost inevitable. And moreover, because Tankook has been shared out among so many individuals, inevitably it cannot be cared for in the way that Ironbound's two extended families care for it. Paradoxically, Tankook's very accessibility by the ferries run daily runs to Chester summer and winter has made life not only easier, but also somewhat less individual than it once was, since islanders no longer risk their lives pushing through rough seas or across half-frozen ice to get the doctor, and since it is no longer necessary to depend for long stretches at a time on what the island can produce, Tankook has tended to become more like everywhere else. Indeed, the ferry service to Chester is now so dependable and regular that the children, after completing grades primary to six on the island, commute daily to and from Chester to school. For them, the ferry is no different than a school bus is for their rural mainland contemporaries. On Ironbound, since commuting is out of the question, a tiny school is maintained for students up to and including grade 10. So that's a little glimpse of... Uh, of Ironbound in the mid 80s anyways and I'll uh, I'll give you just a little bit more of the infrastructure bare bones logistical idea of the island. Ironbound is actually shaped kind of like a classic rubber duck to my mind. I don't know if that idea came uh, from me looking at it as a kid on a map or if somebody else pointed that out to me but regardless. Um, so the duck has its mouth open and when I was growing up, there was a sandbar that connected the upper and lower parts of the duck's mouth. So you could walk over the bar and on one side would be this really large brackish pond and on the other would be the Atlantic Ocean. But the bar was actually washed away in a hurricane some years ago. And so now it's an inlet on the western end of the island. The eastern end of the island has the lighthouse, which has been a reference point for many seafarers over many years and is still an operational light. My family were lightkeepers on Ironbound for generations. As I mentioned, there's about 10 houses and lots of work buildings. And the harbor where all the boats arrived and where all the fish were processed is protected by a large wooden creosote breakwater. 
the end of which carried away in another large hurricane. Um, and now there's a just stacked, like randomly stacked, uh, big granite seawall that's behind the the breakwater that protects that as well from the ocean so um that was another thing that john risley brought to the island and that has i believe saved that infrastructure otherwise i don't think that that wharf would remain um what we would call the fish stores were on the opposite side of the harbor on the land side from the uh, from the breakwater and these were the large buildings where each family processed the fish it's where they would have um, the net rooms for storing and uh, repairing equipment and um, lofts where they would store lobster traps there was very large buildings you know all needed for the practical practical processes of doing this type of work each family processed their fish and each family worked as a syndicate so like I said there were the Finks and the Youngs and each had a syndicate it's an arrangement that I'm actually quite interested in learning more about as we go through this podcast and I get to to speak to some folks who would better understand how the business was run um, there was no church on Ironbound. Church was held in the front sitting room of one of the houses and a, uh, a minister would come out to the island from the mainland um, every week. There was no medical practitioner, so you were, you were far away from any help if you needed something. And to my knowledge, I don't think there were any babies born on the island. I, I think that um, the women would have had to go to the mainland when they were kind of in dates and then wait until the baby was born before returning to the island. Now, I don't, again, this is something I don't have a lot of detail on. I really look forward to um, digging up a little bit more information on it because part of my own background is that I uh, have worked quite extensively as a doula, so attending attending families uh as a support person while they're giving birth and I trained as a midwife and so um, I find it personally very interesting to find the history of the way people were born. Uh, Ironbound today is essentially kind of cottage country for the descendants of the Ironbounders so folks still maintain their own places um, but you know, it's, it's a battle against the sands of time, trying to upkeep buildings in such a, it's a harsh environment and there's no question that it's definitely, um, it's a lot of work to, and a, a lot of money that is required to keep a place up that's, that previously had been kept up by an entire community of people. So, um, it's, it's a bit of a falling note, I realize, to end this little um, introduction on. But I guess the point that I'd like to leave as my takeaway is that there is this beautiful place. It has an incredibly rich history. And the people that lived there were just as vibrant and real as you and I. And we have a lot to learn from our past and, and we need to remember 
what we've learned there to know how we want to go forward into the future. This is what we know about history. So I'm going to sign off and bid you a wonderful day. And I look forward to diving into this history and digging up its treasures. And I hope you'll come along with me on the ride. So on that note, I wish you a wonderful day and I'll speak to you next time.